so we are going to be in the book of Luke again. We started in the book of Luke about two weeks ago, and we started in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and we're starting there because there's a passage there that says that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And, uh, and so that's this turning point of the book of Luke. And um, today we are looking at the relationship between hypocrisy and fear as we look at the, the text today. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 11. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. And the idea behind this series we're doing is I want you to, as much as we can, I'm going to be tying in stories, pictures, illustrations from our trip to Israel recently. Um, I went back in May and part of June. Um, I was supposed to be gone for part of the summer, and I was gone for most of the summer uh, for that trip. But, um, but I'll be talking about part of the trip as we tie in stories and illustrations from into the series. And what I would love for you to experience as we go through the book, this part of the book of Luke is to almost feel like you've been there and as we talk through some of these things. Now, it won't be the full effect, of course, but as much as we can, like, help you understand the context of, in which these stories take place. So looking at Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 38, where it says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he, meaning Jesus, did not first wash before dinner. So who are these Pharisees? You guys hear that? word a lot maybe in the Bible. Like, who are the Pharisees? Well, about 150 B.C., there was this group of Jewish people that kind of rose up because they were recognizing that some Jews were beginning to compromise their faith with the culture around them and maybe living lives that they didn't perceive as holy lives in their culture. And so the Pharisees kind of grew out of that as a sect of Jewish people that wanted to keep like ritual purity and holiness before God as a people. And they were inviting really all the Jews to come into this way of thinking. But if you, if you watch any of the Jesus films, they're the people that have like the, the dark robes and they have the headdress and they have, they're like really kind of done up, you know, when they, in how they dress, also in how they act. And this is the, um, you might call them the religious elite or like the religious special forces like in that day, Right. And uh, these were the Pharisees. So this is the kind of person who invites Jesus to come and to dine with him. So Jesus goes to this man's house, and it says the man is astonished because Jesus didn't first wash before dinner. Now, this is Jesus, or this Pharisee is not upset in the same way that your parents get upset when you don't wash your hands before dinner, right? Um, We just walked through a whole two and a half years of a pandemic where it felt like everybody was like a parent to us. The guys on the news were like, make sure you wash your hands before you eat, right? And they're just harping on this idea of washing your your hands and stuff. Of course, that's to prevent germ spread. But that's not why this man is upset that Jesus hasn't washed before he eats a meal with him. Because back then, there was like this ritual purity thing that they did before they would eat a meal. And it it really kind of got sort of crazy in, in how they applied this. Um, so if you're new to the Bible, again, the Pharisees were like these religious elite people, right? And they not only followed the law, but they would add extra laws because laws are fun for these people. Rules are fun for the Pharisees. And they would add extra laws to what God had already said. 
So one law that they added was to wash before eating. And again, it had nothing to do with hygiene because the water wasn't that clean. Like they didn't have just spring-fed clean water sitting around back then. Like clean water was a, almost a non-existent thing. And, uh, but it was about ritual purity. So they would even wash themselves or wash the utensils before they would eat a meal. But it was often with pretty dirty water because it was a symbolic thing. It was a symbolic thing, and it was about ritual purity before God rather than personal hygiene. So they would wash their hands. They'd wash their, the cups, the pots. They would even wash the furniture before they would eat a meal. So imagine that for a moment, like, go wash your hands. Go wash the chair before you eat a meal. But it was like this symbolic thing in that, in that time. And again, it was like ritual purity before God. So um, Jewish people today do a similar thing in Jerusalem. So if you go to the, the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem, you will see these fountains. And these are, um, these are not, they don't have soap. This is not to, for hygiene. This is like ritual purification before a, a Jewish man or woman would go to the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem to pray and to meditate. And so you see this. And the expectation is that you're going to go and you're going to wash your hands. And it's a ritual thing versus a, a cleansing thing. They also have these things throughout Jerusalem that they've discovered over the years called a mikvah. This is like a, we might think of it as a baptismal, but this is like a ritual cleansing pool. And they're all over the city of Jerusalem. So when people would come to the Temple Mount back then, make a pilgrimage to the temple to worship, they might go to this ritual cleansing pool and cleanse themselves. And Jewish men still do this today. There's pools throughout Jerusalem that are still these old pools and they will actually jump in these things, not for recreation, but they see it as a ritual purification thing before they go to a holy place that they might call holy and, uh, and worship in the way that they, they worship in their, in their religion. So this still happens today where they, they will kind of add laws to things that God said because God never told them they had to do this when it comes to eating a meal necessarily, but they added these laws and traditions to their, what God had said, and then it becomes entrenched in tradition. And so Jesus doesn't wash before the meal, and this Pharisee is astonished and surprised, it says. Now, we don't know if the Pharisee, you know, said something or if he gave him a dirty look, like, how dare you do that, not, not wash in front of me. But then look how Jesus responds. It says, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup. Now he's talking about them when he says this, not an actual cup. You cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. And he says, you fools. I love how Jesus is just so blunt, right? Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. Jesus addresses several things here, and he just, he just lights in to this Pharisee. And again, they would, they would clean dishes before eating, but Jesus uses this cup as a picture of the person. 
and says, you, you wash the outside, but you leave the inside dirty. Meaning you, as people, these religious, uh, self-righteous people, you, you care about the outside only, but you neglect what's inside in someone's heart. And so he's saying you don't care about what's actually inside your heart. That would be like taking a dish and, and just washing the outside of the dish and leaving the inside of the dish dirty, which would make no sense to us. In the same way, it makes no sense for us not to experience inner transformation, letting God transform us from the inside out and only care about the outside. They would also do this funny thing where they would give tithe of their possessions, and God did tell them to give a tithe, a percentage of their possessions, to the religious establishment, there for the temple, for the priests, the Levites. But it says, but you neglect the poor, and you neglect the love of God. And it says that they're like unmarked graves. He refers to these, this Pharisee and, this, and people like him as unmarked graves. What does that mean? Well, if a Jew back then had contact with a grave, they would be considered unclean for seven days. So Jews would put whitewash, which is like paint, on graves so that others would, would know to walk around the grave and not be considered unclean for seven days. So if a grave was unmarked and someone walked over it, they would be unclean without knowing that. So he says, the people who follow the Pharisees, it's like you're leading them to be spiritually unclean without them knowing they're being led astray. So here's the big idea that Jesus, I think, is getting at. Instead of using their faith to serve others, they're using religion to serve themselves. I want you to think about that as it relates to us. What are the ways that we can fall victim to that? What are the ways that we can be tempted to, to, instead of using our faith to serve others, using religion to serve ourselves is a great question for me, for you to think about um, as it relates to our motive, what our motive might be whenever we do things that we might see as good or right, whether it's in the context of the church, whether it's even outside the church. It's a great question for us to think about as it relates to our own faith. Look down at Luke 11:45, where it says, I love this statement. One of the lawyers answered him. He raises his hand. He's like, uh, teacher, teacher. Um, in saying these things, you insult us also. I love that statement. There's a guy sitting in the back who lifts his hand and he says, and he says this. And instead of Jesus apologizing to this guy, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Watch what Jesus does in verse 40. He goes all in. Verse 46, he says, and woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So he turns to the lawyer, and now he's lighting into this guy. That the guy shouldn't have spoken. He should have just been, be quiet. When Jesus is talking and ripping into a Pharisee, don't be like, uh, just so you know, you also offended me when you said that. Jesus turns to him, and now he lights into this guy. And these lawyers, they're adding to God's law. And, and Jesus says, and you're doing, for the people out there, you're adding things to God's law, unnecessary things to God's law, and you're doing nothing to help alleviate the burden. You see, the law wasn't meant to be a burden, but they've made it a burden for the people because they've added things to it. I'll give you an example. So in Exodus, there's this weird little verse in Exodus where it says, where God says, don't boil a young goat 
in its mother's milk. Now, I know this seems strange and weird, but that was one of the laws, one of the food laws. Now, scholars can debate about why this was a food law, like why you could never, you know, boil a young goat in its mother's milk to eat the goat. I mean, some people say, well, it just, it just seems kind of unjust to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. And I guess I kind of get that, that that seems kind of weird and strange. It, it kind of reminds me of the, like, the, the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich where you have the chicken on the, the biscuit and also the egg. It's like the mom chicken and the baby chicken on the same biscuit. It just doesn't seem right. You know what I'm saying? To kill a whole fa- chicken family in one bite. So some think this is maybe what's happening here where, you know, it just doesn't seem right to do that to a young goat in that way. Now, that's the law that God laid down for the Israelites to separate them from other nations. But here's where the Jewish people took that law and are are still taking that law today. If you go to Jerusalem and Israel, you'll see this. Um, Because God says to not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So now where they take that is we we don't mix any dairy and meat products whatsoever in any way. And so they call that, you know, keeping a kitchen kosher. And there's lots of rules for how you keep a kitchen kosher for a Jewish family. Um, my wife and I, once we got COVID over in Israel, we had to go get an Airbnb and stay in this apartment for several days. And um, the apartment's owned by a Jewish family, a really nice family. We never actually never met them, just talked to them on the phone a couple of times. But you could see that there's a whole, like, rule book that we had to look at on what it means to keep the kitchen kosher as it relates to their religion. And so we go to the drawer, and we pull out the drawer, and we see there's, like, two different drawers of two different kinds of utensils. There's the blue kind, which is supposed to be for the, um, the milk and the dairy products. And I remembered this because I was like, okay, temple high, blue front, white back, blue and white go together. So I'm going to make that. It's going to be with the dairy, all right? And then the red is with the, you know, is with the, uh, the meat. And so that's how I remembered it. So red is Belton, blue is Temple, right? And, uh, but there's like two different sets of, of, of utensils for meat and one's for dairy. And I will admit, we kind of fudged a little bit on that. Like we didn't, I would be like, wait, which one is it again? I'm eating yogurt with the wrong one. I, I don't know. Um, but there's all these rules, that you have to follow, right? And uh, other examples would be things like um, if you're eating meat for breakfast in their religion, if you're eating meat for breakfast, so whatever that might be, you can't put cream in your coffee because it's, you're mixing meat and dairy. And now you guys are like upset right now, right? Um, no, we're not doing that. So uh, same for pots and pans. Like you use separate pots and pans for like, if you have anything with dairy in it, like any kind of cheese, that counts as dairy. And so you can't mix that with any kind of meat. So at a restaurant, dairy and meat today cannot be on the same table. So put yourself, you're at a Mexican restaurant and you're eating queso. Queso is a dairy product if it's a legit place, right? They have real milk in that stuff. And uh, so if you're having queso before the main thing comes out. And then they bring out the fajitas. 
Well, now the queso has to go away. They've got to clean the entire table, give you all new utensils because they cannot mix meat with dairy, all right? This is how this plays out in modern-day Israel today. Now, there was a law, of course, about not having a, a, a young goat boiled in its mother's milk, but now they've added to the law. And, and you see what happens now in Israel when, they, when you go there and visit. But why would someone add to the law of God? Why would someone do that? What is it about us? Usually we, want, we don't like rules. I thought we didn't like to do rules. But what is it about human nature that says, I want to add to the things that God already said to do or don't do? Well, if you start adding things, human rules, to what God has already said, it's kind of a way of us keeping score, right? And a way we can earn favor with God and we can start to build standing in our families, in our culture, in our world, and start to feel good about ourselves if we begin to make all these other rules that even God did not say. Now, some of you, I think, you see Christianity simply as a list of rules, and there are two directions that we can go if we view it that way. One is rebellion, and the other is religion. You know, some people can see just any rules as like limiting their freedom. And so they throw off the rules and they want to rebel. But this person, I think, fails to realize that, that every relationship has rules. But, but the rules are meant to serve the relationship. Like if you, have, if you have friendships, which I think many of you guys do, your friendships have rules. If you're in a dating relationship, oh man, your relationship has rules. And if you violate those rules, the relationship is probably over. So every relationship has rules, but the rules are meant to serve the relationship. The same is true with our walk with God. That there are some things we should and should not do, but it's meant to make the relationship joyful and for it to work right. And, and, and God knows that. And, and the same thing plays out in our human relationships. So, so every relationship has rules, and the rules serve that relationship. Now, other people see Christianity only as a list of rules, and they go in the other direction. They go the route of religion, meaning they're using the rules to earn favor with God. And this leads, of course, to pride if you're successful at keeping those rules and despair if you don't. But both groups, the rebellious group and the religious group, both groups miss the gospel because they, they don't realize that, that God has given this law to reveal sin and to show how much we need a Savior. And that's something the Pharisees, as you'll see throughout the book of Luke and other gospels, that they, they just never understood that. So skip down to verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to skip a little section here. So Luke 12, verse 1, where it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So why does Jesus give this warning as, as the crowds are beginning to press in? Well, the disciples might be tempted to go in a couple different directions. 
They might be tempted to gain popularity by pleasing the crowds or to avoid trouble by pleasing the scribes and the Pharisees because everybody wants to be liked. And there's this massive crowd that is assimilated there with Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus knows they could be tempted to go the way of the Pharisees or even the way of the, um, of the crowd as, as well. And so he's warning against the sin of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, how does Jesus define hypocrisy here in this story? I think you could sum it up this way. It's caring only about external actions while ignoring internal attitudes. There is a disconnect between someone's external actions and their, their internal attitude. Now, it'd be like cleaning the outside of a cup but leaving the inside dirty. And, and you see, God wants to cleanse the whole person. He wants to transform the whole person, the heart attitudes, everything. So it leads to transform action on the outside. But we can't just pretty up the outside and leave the inside untransformed. So he's describing this life that's disjointed. Mike McKinley defines it this way. Hypocrisy puts the bar at an impossible height and then encourages everyone to pretend that they're jumping over it. So the word hypocrisy comes from a word which means to, to pretend. So how many of you all in here are in theater? Raise your hand. Okay, so all two of you. There's more than that I know that are involved in that. But um, many of you all are. I know that. And uh, now... The nature of being involved in theater is that, I mean, everyone knows this. If you're an actor in a play, you're going to, you know, put on some makeup. You're going to dress a certain way, act a certain way. Everyone knows that's not you. Like, you're playing a role. You're playing a part. Well, the word hypocrisy or hypocrite actually comes from that theater word. And in real life, sometimes we play a part. And, and we, we, we act a certain way or we try to be a certain way. And it's really not who you are deep down. And this is the idea that's being, I think, expressed here. Now, how do we struggle with hypocrisy? Well, what are some ways? Well, um, when we pretend to be more holy than we really are, when we're unwilling to confess sin that we're struggling with, when we begin to establish rules for everyone else to follow except we're not going to follow those ourselves. When we're comfortable with, you know, private sins that nobody else knows about and that we're never going to share with anybody else, never allowing those things to come into the light. That's the essence of hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is about hiding, but it says here that no one can really ever hide from God. And, and so now that we've, we've defined it, I want to talk about what causes it. And so look down at uh, verse 4 of chapter 12 where it says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn, you who, I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. So what causes hypocrisy? Well, it's really this, it's this fear of man. 
Have you thought about how many of your decisions are based on fear? Think about just your weekly routine. Like how many of your decisions are, are based on a fear of what someone else might think or say about you? Just forget the week. Just look at one day. How many of your decisions are based on a fear of what somebody might think of you? Jesus says no matter how much we fear man, I love his statement, all man can do is kill you. Now you might say, well, that's still a lot. And that's true. But when it comes from eternal perspective, you can say, yeah, all that person can do is kill me. That's the absolute worst that they can do. But he says there's another fear we should actually think about more, and it's, it's fearing God in a worshipful, reverence kind of way. And God carries an even greater authority. So many of us let people, mankind, carry this weight and authority in our lives. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a greater authority you should be worried about, and it's from God the Father. So you might say it like this statement. We should be less concerned with what others think of us and more concerned with what God knows about us. You recognize one of these, the top one, deals only in perception. The bottom one there deals with reality and the way things truly are. And so we can't, we can't hide from God. He knows our hearts. And if we live our life fearing man and not fearing God, we're going to spend, the Bible says, Jesus says in this passage, that we will spend eternity separated from God if we allow fear of man to trump fear of God. So right here, Jesus talks about hell. And listen, I could do a whole sermon on that. I have done a whole sermon on that. You can go back to our podcast and go back a couple years. You'll find it on how can a good God send anyone to hell. And I wish I had more time to talk about this. But Jesus talks about hell here. And listen, no one talked more about hell than Jesus did. And this is not popular for us to say in the church. But listen, God, God doesn't force himself on anyone. If someone lives apart from Christ in this life, and then, then God gives that person what they want, which is separation from him, and they will get eternal separation from him. So listen, if you have a hard time accepting this kind of thinking or, or a concept like that, there's something that kind of helps me sometimes when I'm thinking about a hard concept when it comes to God or the Bible and when I don't understand God's ways, and it's this. It's very simple. At times I'll think about the vastness of the universe, the fact that there are about 5,000 stars that are visible to us to the naked eye, and that there are, they say there are 400 billion stars in our galaxy, and some say there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. And when I think about the bigness of God, and that we worship a God who made all that, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he is infinite in wisdom. Then I think about myself, and I go, okay, there's that God who made all that, and, and by comparison, my brain weighs three pounds. Now, now, yours might weigh more than that, 
but I'm about three pounds. And, and this is the mind that we use to, to turn the tables on God and, and, and make God the student and ourselves the teacher. Like we're going to teach God something about the justice of the universe. And, and so if you're going to be a Christ follower, one who worships God, there are just going to be some things that we don't understand fully. And I've just come to accept that reality. Now, I still struggle just like you do, but when I think of the vastness of God, it helps me understand sometimes how my limited thinking, I'm not going to fully comprehend everything in this life. So we ask, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Well, these words that are spoken here come from the most loving and compassionate man who ever walked on the face of the earth. You see, a loving God tells the truth. A loving God gives a warning. To not warn us would be unloving. There's something else I want you to see here in the passage where it's this idea, fearing God drives out fear of man. And and fearing God doesn't mean just like being scared of God, but it's to see God in the proper way. It's seeing him for who he really is and, and responding to him in worship and adoration and praise. And I also want you to see here in in these few little verses that fearing God in the right way leads to a fear not. That when you fear God in the right way, the end of that little phrase there, and I think in verse 7, he says, fear not. So when when you fear God in the proper way, in the right way, it leads to you no longer living in fear in the way that you might if you still lived under the fear of man. So fearing God drives out fear of man. Let's get down to verse 8 where it says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. At times we are afraid to acknowledge Jesus before other people because of fear. And Jesus says to the one that denies him, he will deny. Now, there's that really confusing Sex, again, I've like preached a whole sermon on what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's years ago. And so I'll say this very quickly. But when he says those that blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's like the unforgivable sin. You might say, well, what do you mean unforgivable sin? What he's saying there is someone who lives their life resisting the Holy Spirit's influence in their life, that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that Jesus is who he said he was, that if someone resists the Holy Spirit in that way throughout their life, if they take that attitude to their grave, then of course, yes, that God doesn't forgive that sin. That person lives separate from God for eternity, eternally separated from him. This is the person who doesn't believe that Jesus is truly God, and they go to their grave that way. So if you're a Christ follower, you don't need to be afraid that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit without knowing it because 
it's not a sin that someone commits accidentally. So you've seen through this, this passage, there's this relationship between hypocrisy and fear. I want to go back to the idea of this, of, of this eternal separation from God. And I know it's hard whenever you're going into a new series, you, you, know, you, you kind of want to keep things light sometimes, or you want to start off with kind of a light message, so to speak. But when I look at how Jesus preached, that's not what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus, like, told these people the truth, right? And, and so I don't want to gloss over his words and what he said here. But listen, um, I want you to just think deeply about this this morning. If you're someone who's not yet a Christ follower, I'm going to invite you to respond this morning to the message of the gospel. You might think to yourself, you know, well, well, well God is good. Like, he's not going to send me into eternal separation from him. Well, you're, you're right about his goodness, but his goodness also demands justice. And either Jesus pays for our sins, because he offers that to us, either he pays for our sins or we pay for our sins. And my encouragement to you is to let him pay. Let him pay the price. There's a really depressing passage over in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 25, where it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. So whenever we reject God, he, he has a way of handing us over to our devices, to our choices. And so if, if we want freedom from God, we're, we're free to have it. We're free to be selfish and to exploit other people and to steal and lie and hate and delve into sin. But in the end, we're also going to get freedom from his goodness, from his provision, from his joy, from his comfort, from his protection. So might it be that hell is, a, is God giving us just what we want, which is freedom from himself, that hell might be the, the final handover. And so if you're not yet a Christ follower, I want to rec- recognize this morning that God offers to you salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. His death on the cross on your behalf, his resurrection on your behalf, and he offers you a relationship with him, to be one with him, for you to live your life in surrender and community and mission, and to be one with him in a relationship with him. Now, if you already are a Christ follower, and, and you think about the concept of eternal separation from God, you know, we think that we're just not that bad. We think, well, I don't deserve that. And we still kind of see God as unjust as it relates to what we might deserve apart from Christ. But I think the gospel, again, reminds us how much we need him and the provision that he gives us in the gospel and how it is, it cannot be earned. And that my righteousness cannot be earned before God. And so God offers us 
his righteousness applied to us in the gospel. And when, when you recognize that truth, that reality, it is an amazing thing to live from that place to know there is nothing I can do that will earn that. And that's where freedom is found. And you're no longer living under this, this fear of man because you're seeing God for who he is and seeing God in the proper way, in the right way. So if you struggle with the reality that there's going to be this eternal separation for those who don't surrender to Christ, I want to read these words of Francis Chan to you in his book called Erasing Hell, where it says, We are bound by the words of the Creator, the one who will do what is right, the one who invented justice and knows perfectly what the unbeliever deserves. God has never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if his way of doing things is morally right, but he's only asked us to embrace his word and bow the knee to tremble at his word. As Isaiah says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now this morning I want to invite you to do something. If we're going to go to breakouts in just a minute and it's a little bit late, that's okay. When we go to breakouts, if you would consider yourself not yet a Christ follower, first of all, I just appreciate your honesty. Because we want you here. We want you hearing the good news about Jesus. But if you find in your heart this morning just a spirit stirring and, and you, you sense this, this thought or desire that you want to follow Christ with your life, you want to surrender your life to him, I want you to pull aside one of your leaders this morning and have a conversation. And say, hey, I, I just, I want you to know, like, I, I see myself as a sinner separated from God because of my sin. And I want the righteousness of Christ applied to me in my life and for eternity. And I want to walk with him. And I, I want to grow in him. And that's where you find yourself this morning. I want you to have a conversation with, with a leader today and say, hey, will you pray for me as I tell God that? And listen, we don't believe that salvation is, is wrapped up in just saying a few little words in a prayer. We believe that you're saved by faith. You're saved by belief. But even the faith to believe is a gift from God. And so if you want to receive that this morning, then have that conversation with a leader today, before or after or during your breakout, um, as you guys go. Because listen, I never want us to un like miss the point here. Like The point isn't that you just come into this place and you just hear a little devotional about the Bible. And you walk out, and eh, that's some good points. We learn some stuff. But the question is, do you know him? Do you want to know him? Do you want to follow him? And so if you find yourself in that place this morning, I want to challenge you to have that conversation with a leader today and maybe start that relationship with him this morning. And then September 18th, we're going to have a baptism. We would love to celebrate that with you as you take that next step of obedience into baptism. And so uh, at, this, at this point, we're going to go to our breakouts. Um, there are some discussion sheets at the back for our leaders.